Welcome to Masala PTI with your hosts, Ravi and Arvind. Pardon these Indians as they take you on a unique and wild ride around the world of sports. Welcome to another episode of Masala PTA Boys and Girls. Uh, the tough 2020 continues. Um, uh, this is your host, Aravind, and I got my partner, Ravi, here as well. Um, we are again dealing with some interesting situations, both in the country as well as in the sports world. Um, as most of our listeners are probably aware of, there was another uh, police shooting in Wisconsin and NBA and WNBA and MLS and several leagues have at least temporarily suspended some games and that has uh, kind of dominated the sports headlines. Uh, obviously, we want to share a few thoughts on that before jumping into more uh, mundane sports-related things. Uh, Ravi, how, how are you feeling about the latest uh, uh, you know, uh, situation in the country as well as in the sports world. Yeah, hello, uh, Arvind, and uh, hello to our listeners as well. And I think it's all, for obvious reasons, it's a very sobering, very almost morose series of uh, events, uh, you know, with, with everything that's going on as a global pandemic. But uh, even more so, I feel, just when we thought that things couldn't get any worse with this latest shooting, uh, it just feels like, you know, there is always a chance for things to get worse. And in this case, aside from all the other platitudes and things that people have already said, uh, which I obviously will not repeat, two things stand out as, you know, as is, is an even more depressing uh, highlight. One of which is that the intensity of how... Uh, uh, you know, maniacal or how inhuman these acts are becoming gets worse and worse, right? So at some point, to me, it starts getting infuriating when people say that there are two sides of a coin or there are always two sides to a story. I think some of what we are seeing now crosses all those barriers of gray. To me, mm-hmm. there is absolutely no justification for one side uh, in in what has just happened, right? I mean, shooting someone yes. uh, at point-blank range seven times, and we are not talking about uh, a demented killer. We are talking about trained personnel who know exactly where to shoot, let's be honest. And instead, they go basically all guns blazing. Uh, I think yeah. to me, there is no justification. And to me, that's what, and that's the derivative impact. And that's what's going to be my second point. That's the derivative impact of something like this, wherein the event in itself is ghastly and deplorable. But now I have reached a point, personally speaking, where to me, if anyone comes up with even a but, but you know, or yes, that's bad, but you know, to me, I have started developing a phobia or an allergy towards any such opinions. I have lost my pain tolerance or sorry, my patience, my tolerance with anyone that has a contrarian opinion in this regard. No, that's that's fair. I think you're just sick and tired of it, just like a lot of the athletes and coaches and media personnel are. And I think, yeah, the, the brutality of it is the shocking part, right? Yes. I think... I think uh, uh, there is the racism part and the bias part. 
And just the brutality of it is what, as immigrants especially, uh, we feel like uh, that thing is a little bit worse in this country than other parts of the West, at least, we have traveled to, which I'm not even sure why that is. And I think somewhere in there, there is probably a, a topic which is not touched on much, I think needs mentioning too, which is, I always feel like this country is different because of guns. I know that's another complete rat hole of a topic, but I don't know what it is, but the police clearly, despite all the training you're talking about, are are just uh, being very brutal. You know, the, the words police brutality just rings so true, right? Sometimes these terms are often used without much thought put into it, but in situations that we have seen in the, over the last three months, especially, it's like the perfect apt, uh, you know, if you have a dictionary representation of the police brutality word, these are the incidences that would be in the dictionary. So that part is pretty shocking as well. Uh, but coming back to sports, uh, you know, the, the NBA, I thought, did a great job by just boycotting now there's a lot of like to your point about people asking all kinds of contrarian questions there's a lot of people asking oh what's the solution what's the end game and this and that sometimes i'm not sure if there needs to be an end game right exactly right you're making a statement and the statement in and of itself is important when it's coming from you know lebron james and chris paul and you and me making a statement doesn't mean anything but those guys making a statement pretty much dominated the news all day yesterday, right? And, you know, the other thing that's lost, Ravi, in this is these athletes are at the end of the day, 23, 24, 25-year-old on average. They should not be solving these problems for us, right? Correct. There are people whose job is to solve these problems, and they're just using their platform to kind of push us in the right direction in some way. So I'm totally fine with, with them not having an end game in this. Uh, that That's another common criticism, and I, I'm sure uh, that bothered you as well. 100%. And uh, at the cost of sounding like I'm agreeing with you on everything, which I guess we <laughs> normally do, yeah. couldn't agree more with you on this. And because especially, to, because something that you said really aligned with me, and that is that these players and their relative maturity has been mind-boggling to me. And we're not talking because we're not talking about some of the uh, quote-unquote elder statesmen of the game. I'm including, you know, active players like a LeBron James. Uh, we are talking about the entire length and breadth of the NBA and most, if not all, of the players being unified in their uh, vocal support for the cause. And to me, that matters for something. That in itself matters for something. The second point being, again, you're absolutely right. The results of what the end game is should not matter. In fact, if you look at some of the more momentous decisions or momentous events in history, I will hedge a fair amount to say that not everyone had the end state or the milestone they were seeking with their act at the time they actually did the act. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. I'm including, I mean, let's be honest, at the cost of sacrilege, I'm saying we, we now, as a revisionist historian, we all talk about Muhammad Ali as one of the foremost spokesperson uh, for, you know, the cause of the, uh, uh, you know, the deprived and the underprivileged. His 
his decision say not to not to go to war or not to take certain civil action maybe he was he was i mean he he was different he was unique he was you know he was far ahead of his times but to me not every action logically can be assumed that he had the end goal in mind and i'm not right. so i'm i'm being limited and i'm trying very consciously right, right. not to talk about anyone who's not a sports person but to me it matters that these guys have taken the stance irrespective of whether they even know what the end goal is exactly and that's too much to ask i think and and i absolutely agree with your uh, uh you know general drift on this because what happens with movements in general right is there are some symbols and symbolism that that kind of galvanizes people and you can even go i i you know it was a good reference with mohammad ali you can always even go deeper in history and even with i always bring this example of french revolution right not mm-hmm. that I, i know much of history but one of the uh, pivotal moment there was people just got so frustrated with everything and then they stormed the prison of bastille right and let go of all the people in there right the point was they were protesting against the government and the atrocities and all of that and they were like okay you arrest a lot of political prisoners i'm going to let these prisoners out the reality was the prison was pretty much like had like seven grifters and you know people who stole some 100 bucks and things like that right there were no right. real political prisoners or anybody there but that kind of is kind of a symbolic event in french revolution right that came to mind when we were talking about this because sometimes those actions those symbols matter as much as whether those protesters in france thought through all of that and had a game plan to release all the pulled none they didn't think all of that right they just saw a very significant prison and then they just stormed it and just let go of the seven like uh, you know people who printed a couple of hundred bucks of fake notes or whatever out precisely that that is sometimes how people take out their anger on and i think that's uh, you know it's easy to argue these things but sometimes you got to put yourself in their shoes to appreciate where they're coming from but coming back to the nba it looks like uh one thing that i found interesting really was apparently the most controversial thing in the players meeting was really people were really upset at uh, the milwaukee bucks because they basically walked out or boycotted without telling anybody else uh i thought that was an interesting controversy because uh i think it would have been nice to let at least uh, orlando magic know who they were playing plus you know the whole league would have only supported them on this right which they ended up doing anyway so uh, maybe it was too last minute i don't know what it was but uh, looks like they took the decision in their own hands and the players as a whole uh, apparently wanted a little bit more coordination and uh, communication over that so apparently Kyle Culver was was you know one of the bugs had to kind of apologize for that and i thought that was an interesting twist but long story short looks like they are uh, going to play starting tomorrow or day after and i think that is also the right decision because they should not lose this platform i think that's really what it's about they shouldn't lose this platform because they are making their uh you know voice heard and if they go home uh, it's not going to be much of a voice for them yeah i agree and i wanted to also bring in a complete left field uh, justification for why i think they made their point i think the stance was well taken Mm-hmm. uh but uh, a left field uh, point of view on why now 
I think it should be back to business, play out the playoffs. And that left field uh, opinion, interestingly, was something that my uh, younger son brought up, which is that the whole process of the of setting up and executing the uh, the bubble in its most reliable and safe manner for for it to be able to present to us some fantastic basketball over the past few weeks has taken a significant effort and investment of time effort resources and money not to mention hundreds and thousands of actual covert tests right which yeah. were at a premium basis offered and made available for these players so that investment at least if nothing else of those tests make it uh, make it I mean, make it almost obligatory for them to finish out the playoffs, finish out the season, versus kind of leaving the season in the lurch. You kind of feeling like you know you you invested some very precious, more precious right. than gold assets right now into something that didn't end up getting completed anyways. That's a good point. You, you know, kudos to your son for coming up with that because <laughs> we, I guess you and I are not that smart. But <laughs> totally. <laughs> But, because I was still hung up on the same thing, which is, you know what, Let, uh, who, I mean, let's be honest, who cares for the 2020 NBA champion when there are bigger things happening in the world? Right. And, uh, but at the same time, to me, then I realized that even that point of view is fairly lethargic. It doesn't right. count for the fact that there is multiple layers of accountability right, right. beneath that. And you need to be, uh, you know, you need to take on that responsibility. Because not only were the tests precious for everybody, they were probably significantly taken away from brown and black people. Indeed. Indeed. Right? So they are the most hurt by the virus anyways. So they had taken a lot of those resources. Anyways, I I hope this is the last incident at least uh, for a while, right? That these guys have to deal with, uh, at least in the bubble, because the country cannot just deal with this every six weeks or whatever. Uh, and hope they they continue to use their platform for uh, uh, pushing good messages, which they have been totally doing. And uh, let's see where it goes. And from our side, I guess we will uh, kind of pivot to more mundane topics to give some distraction to our listeners and frankly to ourselves, right? We have all been dealing with a lot throughout the years. Yes. Um, uh, switching gears completely, Ravi, and we'll come back to the bubble later. I know you had uh, some thoughts on uh, cricket, which we don't talk a whole lot, but obviously us both being Indian Americans always have an eye on cricket. And one of the most famous Indian cricketers, Mahindra Singh Dhoni, retired recently. And uh, you are a big fan of him, so I'm going to yield the floor to you. Uh, who do you say is most, uh, who, who can you compare him to in the NFL and the NBA? He's clearly not, Brady or MJ, because I would still go with uh, Sachin Tendulkar for that. Uh, can we say he's like Aaron Rodgers, maybe? Yeah, yes, <laughs> I mean, I would say uh, for sure, except that the reason why, to me, uh, Dhoni has been what he has been, and I will kind of explain why I have always been a huge fan of Dhoni, and then I will put a, 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 you know, a, a parallel, or I will kind of trace an analogy of a player who I closely associate him with in the NFL. Um, to me, what Dhoni represented was the true emergence of the small town aspirant in ha. the Indian diaspora. He was not from Mumbai or Bombay. He was not from uh, Delhi. He was not even from Chennai or Bangalore or 
Kolkata, you know, the, the so-called bastions, the major metro cities in India. He came from literally the smallest of the small towns in Ranchi, which was known for industrial, you know, for being an industrial hub, but not for a sporting talent. And not just that, he didn't emerge as someone who people had uh, a close eye on right from his early days. He basically was an unknown until into his 20s. When, uh, and again, some of this I know is uh, too much information for most of our listeners, but he basically used to work for the Indian Railways as someone who used to collect tickets. Uh, so that was his job well into his early 20s without any uh, you know, whiff of even being close to playing for his state team, leave alone the Indian cricket team. So from there to within four years from that point, to being made the captain of the Indian cricket team, to me represented a curve which had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with him being, uh, you know, back paddled or being uh, pushed forward by an influential uh, person in the know or him being from a privileged background or him being from one of the major cricketing hubs. Literally, he fought the odds like no one ever has in the history of Indian cricket. And so to me, that was, that to me is number one. Number two, though, is how he completely transformed the the definition and the stereotype of an Indian cricketer. Because prior to that, you would find, and this was an interesting thing, I must admit, I am stealing from a podcast I was listening to, where they said that prior to Dhoni becoming captain, mm-hmm. most, most, if not all, Indian captains had their favorite journalists. They had their favorite selectors in the, you know, in the Indian cricket board. They had their favorite players on the Indian cricket team. So as long as you could find some way as a journalist or as a, uh, you know, as a fellow cricketer or as a member of the selection channel, if you could find some way to weasel into the good, uh, you know, the good books of the Indian cricket captain, you could curry some favors. And that was completely appended when Dhoni took over since the time he's come in you see what a lot of people, even critics of Dhoni as a cricketer, they say that the one thing he established was true democracy, true fairness. In terms yeah. of, you know, I want my guys, either give them to me or I'm no longer captain. And that's something, you know, if you compare, Arvind, I know you could relate to this uh, uh, just like me. If you think back to the Pakistan cricket team under Imran Khan, one of the things that people used to say about Imran was, he basically said, I'm the captain, I want my player. If I don't get him, I don't care. You know, uh, I need him. And that's how he picked up Vaseem Akram and, uh, you know, Inzamam Hulak and all that. And I think to some extent, Dhoni uh, bringing to forth the fact that Virat Kohli, not Gambhir, not Rana, not anyone else, Virat Kohli was the guy that should be the next Indian cricket captain. Or let's make Rohit Sharma the opener in the Indian cricket team when no one else thought of that. But things like that to me are what put Dhoni in front of a lot of other players of this generation. Now, yeah. To answer the question of who he would <laughs> most closely relate to, you know who I think he was as a talent, he was completely unorthodox, but ended up becoming a world beater at his position. Mm-hmm. And other than the fact that he was a great captain, which this person was never seen as a leader, but the one that I closely associate him mostly is Randy Moss. Oh, he, nice. He redefined his position, I feel, as a wicketkeeper batsman. He has the highest average of anyone in the history of, in, of world cricket at his position. Um, you know, kind of utilized unorthodox ways of excelling at his position. He was not, you know, orthodox in any form. And, you know, you could kind of talk about Randy Moss in a lot uh, of ways in a very similar vein and Mm -hmm. and ended up becoming, you know, uh, what you would define as a Hall of Famer. And 
uh, I think uh, in a few years, Dhoni will definitely be in the ICC Hall of Fame. But that's the player that I always relate him to. No one gives them any semblance of uh, uh, hope and uh, they end up becoming who their talent actually uh, uh, tells them to be. That's that's a great comparison. Uh, how about in the NBA? <laughs> okay, so there it's a lot more difficult and it's probably because, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the name that keeps coming to my mind and again, I think I'm bordering on sacrilege here because of <laughs> who I'm going to say, but I think of Steph Curry when he came on, right? When he was drafted, he had, and I forget, and I need to listen to Bill Simmons's podcast nowadays. He's doing this uh, uh, rewatchables, talking about the past year's drafts, right? So I need to listen back to who all was drafted ahead of Curry that year. But yeah, when he yeah. was drafted, no one thought he would be who he is. But but Today, where, but go just for stealing from your point, one thing that you the fact that he was not very highly rated, Curry was still what seventh pick, so he was not that far low, right? Yeah. But you are right in that compared to where he is now, he was not that highly rated. However, one of the interesting points you made about Dhoni was how he was from small town and he was kind of a relative unknown. I think there, uh, the analogy falls off a little bit because Curry has his last name, right? He was pretty... That way it was a road laid in roses for him in one sense. So, yes, I mean, I think for the most part, I agree with you. Where I disagree is that despite that last name, he still was, I mean, not that despite that last name, but basically his resume or his badge essentially read Steph Curry Davidson, right? I mean, my point is... Right, right. You're right. He didn't come from a pedigreed school, though. And you're right. I think the Curry last name enabled him. And I was watching the Vince Carter documentary recently, and you could see Curry at the age of five. Yeah, shooting hoops with Vince Carter in Toronto because his dad was playing there. I agree with that. But I think in a a few different other ways, I feel there is an analogy there. Yeah, that's a good point because Curry, you you could argue both ways about Curry, right? Yeah. Uh, But fair point. One one thing I really uh, like about Dhoni is uh, the point you made about how he democratized and if he brought fairness into the sport. It should really, for American audience, that should be kind of obvious. And yes, yes. But we, you and I know that back in the 80s and 90s, especially the selection, the process of bringing people in to represent India, it was just way too political and uh, unfair, right? Uh, so in that sense, the ability for him to clean up that system definitely deserves a lot of credit because uh, India tend to be a little bit too messy in those kind of areas for uh, for whatever reason. We are just too much politics in every uh, step of the way and mostly because the politicians take over these powerful positions in sports, right? Because yes. it, it shouldn't be in their hands, but it's somehow they take over and then it becomes uh, another government department in some ways. And then their uncles and nephews and you know all kind of things you can imagine in a poorly run government organization happens in cricket boards as well. Indeed, um, indeed. And yeah. you know the the most dreaded word in that in 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 in, uh, in that context is quota, right? I mean any politically run organization, which in India, unfortunately, includes or at least used to include when we were growing up education or sports, 
even things which are not technically administrative functions, you always had quotas, right? Quotas, certain yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ca- uh, categorization. And that was the same thing in, in, in something like cricket as well. You needed five people from the West Zone representing India, four people from the South Zone. I think all of that was eliminated with this guy coming to, coming to the forefront. Yeah, that's a huge contribution. Hopefully it stays that way. Um, and as a, as a batsman, I was never really, I could never really understand how he was even that successful because in terms of pure technical uh, batsmanship, right? Um, yeah. Skill set, he was nowhere near some of the higher pedigree guys in the Indian cricket uh, field, especially his peers. But still, in terms of results, he's just uh, just right there with those legends, right? Just, yes. I always found that part of it fascinating. And I'm sure you have a little bit more of uh, uh, involved uh, opinion on that as well. So on that, right, again, my opinion is very contrarian to most, uh, 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 you know, people uh, praising and complimenting him for his wide array of qualities. And one of the qualities that everyone associates with Dhoni is that he was very, uh, he was a risk taker or he was a very aggressive uh, leader and a player. And to me, in my evaluation, he was exactly the opposite, and which is not a bad thing. I think it was fantastic that he brought the uh, ability for strategic analysis in the sport of cricket. Uh, he was ultimately risk averse and to the point where, Arvind, to address your earlier comment, as a batsman, he started off as a dasher, right? I mean, he would come in early in the order uh, and hit a few sixes and ended up scoring some centuries at better than run a ball. And that was, his, that was the original Dhoni that the whole country fell in love with. Over the, over the years, especially once he became captain, he started being very measured in his approach. And, you know, one of the things that often gets talked about is that in when India was chasing in limited overs uh, matches, Dhoni's average was over 100. That is significant. And that obviously was also because he ended up not out on a number of occasions. Right. But the reason for that, as he himself has said, and people who have been more uh, uh, deep and profound in their analysis is, his objective always was, let's not uh, take a risk too early in the game. It's almost like if you're down by four with two minutes to go in a basketball game, the three should not be your primary, should not be your only option. I mean, I guess in today's game, a three is the best option, even in the first, you know, <laughs> right, first, right. first, first play of the first quarter. But the, his <laughs> point was, let me not take a three-pointer until literally the last play of the game. And his, I mean, the way you would draw that up in cricket is he used to wait for the last over. And if from a required run rate of six in the last 10, even if it got down to 15 needed in the last over, Dhoni felt it was a mano a mano of him versus one guy that he could target and he needs to score 15 against that guy, which is in his mind, a lot fairer of an of a, of a bout than needing to score, you know, even 16, 10 and having to try to hit out, hit and get out. So I thought it, there was a whole lot of analysis which went into his brain. And oftentimes to me, people just say, oh, he refused to take, I mean, he was a risk taker and then he refused to take risks. To me, he's always been the same. He was an analyst, he was an assessor, and that reflected in some of the ways he used to go about his business. Yeah, that's a good point. I think yeah, I've seen that a couple of times in the Chennai Super Kings for the IPL as well. Where, yes, uh, yes. So, uh, as both of us being from that part of the country uh, originally is huge uh, in, in Chennai. And, and the other thing I think he deserves a lot of credit for is uh, basically making fitness one of the main uh, you know, drivers in cricket. Because cricket, 
uh, tends to be a little bit like a bicycle on that front, like a little bit like baseball in that sense, right? You don't have to be super fit to uh, be a you know great performer, but I I I always hear that he brought that into the uh, culture. Very much so, and to the point where, uh, and that's again a very important point because it represented a change in culture and change in that servile mindset that, along with the whole politically charged, uh, uh, you know, administrative cycle that Indian cricket used to be, the other point or the other ma- mindset that goes along with it is kind of this deference to seniors or this almost servile attitude. You don't want to. Uh, you know, ruffle any feathers. And in that sense, Dhoni, if you remember, uh, about 10 years ago, laid it out to the board that, you know, we have some older players who used to be legends or who are legends, but they are no longer fast and fit on the field. I want them out. And to me, that's those are the hard decisions that you associate with a Belichick or a Popovich, right? I mean, when Dhoni does it, it's sacrilege in India. Yeah, yeah. He did that to Tendulkar even, right? Yes, he did that. Yeah, yeah, he did that to Tendulkar, Dravid, Ganguly, Lakshman. I mean, literally the who's who of uh, the early 2000s of uh, Indian cricket. But you know what? You look back and you think that's how you got Kohli and Sharma and all of these new guys. Great, great. Anyway, that's that's a great tribute from you to uh, Dhoni and, and hope he has a great post-career, uh, post-cricket career. Wish him the best. And... We'll uh, we'll see who is the next domino to fall in cricket because a lot of the people we kind of idolized over the last uh, 10, 15 years are all getting to that age right now. But I guess Kohli has a few years to go at least, right? Yes, that's right. right. I think he's still in his prime and yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Now pivoting back to... um, uh, American sports, Ravi. What did you think of the uh, Suns? Uh, uh, you know, hard luck at the end of it all, but eight uh, zero run in the bubble, followed by, I believe, the tenth pick in the lottery. Uh, the, the lottery was interesting for two reasons, right? One was Suns were in it, but then the Warriors were in it too. We both of us being from the Bay Area, the Warriors got the second pick. And they are going to be one of the most fascinating participants in the draft, right? Given that they're there mostly because of injuries. So they're going to get a good team back and then they get this second pick. Uh, how do you see both the Warriors and the Suns uh, going into the draft now that both of them are out of the bubble? So I'll speak to the Warriors first because I know uh, less uh, about uh, what, you know, what they should do i'm assuming that uh, uh they would like someone uh, you know uh, rather let's uh, which which ball brother is it that is uh, due to be either a number <laughs> one or number two lamelo yeah Lamello. so i'm i'm assuming he is not on the warriors priority list or maybe he is uh, but i assume that uh, uh, they they would look for what's what's the other guy's name I, and i'm drawing a blank on uh, the, the other guy you mean James Weissman? James Weissman, yes. Yeah. So from from what I've read, and again, my knowledge, as you know, of whether it is, uh, you know, draft assets and potential draftees in the NFL or in the NBA is very poor. So, but from what I've read, James Weissman happens to be someone that uh, they could use, uh, they could make some use of. With the Suns, uh, I mean, I'm actually going to pivot to talking about uh, 
their show at the bubble and what the future looks like with the current set of players uh, because again admittedly i don't know what their app options are at number 10 aside from the only guy that i have been following is cole anthony uh, and mm. to me you know that would be a definite uh, plus for them but going back i think i was absolutely zapped by 8 and 0 and notwithstanding the fact that at least four of those wins came against uh, the second or third teams for the teams that they played against i mean you know a number of key guys sat but still 8, 8 so two things one 8 and 0 is 8 and 0 and number two any win is a huge morale boost for a team as young as the suns and you could see it in their and i think we spoke about this when we had our last podcast that at no point in any game even when they were down by double digits in a couple of games did it feel like they had given up so right. it was important to win that particular game irrespective of their awareness that it could all turn to not at the end you know again going back to what was the end game to them it they knew that there was still a very feeble chance for them to make it and it still had to depend on other teams doing something wrong and still you know the fact that they just focused on the win is a huge tribute to them but an even bigger tribute to uh, to monty uh, yes so definitely super, super excited and along with that just one other point I think we saw the emergence of Devin Booker as a bona fide superstar. I think there were times in every game where you knew that he's going to have the ball and he's going to make it happen and he did literally every time that he was uh, you know asked to uh, handle a call. I think he was fantastic. Uh, you know yeah. the, the, the only uh, the sobering thing on the other end of the spectrum has been I've been also following Luka for the past week. <laughs> his play in every game is making me cry more and more about the whole DeAndre Ayton situation. Right. Actually, uh, I have a thought on that too. I don't know okay. if we discussed okay. this in the past. But basically, going back to the Suns, one thing I wanted to say was not only do I agree with most of what you said, I also, this is a little bit of you know, hindsight 2020. This is easy to say. But I am now convinced they would have also been... Uh, been a tougher uh, matchup for the lakers now that with you know damian lillard injured and all that yes. that team is really just lillard and very poor defense and nothing else Correct. going on right i yes. feel like the suns would have put up a better fight uh, you know uh, i full disclosure i probably was also not in that camp 10 days back before the series started i thought they might give all kinds of trouble to the lakers but having seen three of those games or four or i think it's four now yeah i am convinced the portland just does not have enough going on there i think yes the suns don't have the up, the the ceiling of a superstar that dame has right i would still put booker probably 75 80% of dame Yes, but the, yes. but then the rest of the team and the coaching and all of that I definitely like uh, Monty and the Suns roster better than what the Portland is showing. But I agree with you that the uh, the bad thing about Luka uh, situation for the Suns is that they picked Aiton over Luka. But the good thing is people don't uh give them as hard a time as they do Sacramento yes. and Atlanta right yes because at the end of the day Aiton was the right pick you just cannot uh you know it's easy to say now Luka is a better player he is no doubts there 
but Aiton is the uh, safer, more logical pick at that time, right? So that's what, and he has been playing well. So that is obviously yeah. skewing how we view this. So the parallel, Ravi, I'm sure you had seen this, is the Jordan draft, right? Yeah. Jordan yeah. was the best player ever, and he was drafted third. Now, everybody gives a lot of grief to Portland for passing on him at two, but yes. nobody gives any grief to Houston uh, at one because they got Hakeem, who was, yes. first of all, a Hall of Famer. Yeah. yeah. Secondly, he won two championships. Now, I would very happily take that, right? A lot of people are saying it's the same comparison here, where if Suns had actually taken Hakeem and if Aiton helps us get two rings or even one ring, I will more than happy, right? Uh, Dallas can have Luca and the court if he ends up, you know, as a goat, I would still uh, be happy with that situation. So a lot of experts are drawing a parallel there, which is very interesting. So I just hope uh, Aiton ends up being uh, what Hakeem was for to Houston. And uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that's that's. And no, and you're really making me think on this because again, my initial reaction was one of those knee-jerk. Look how well Luca is playing. I wish we had him paired with Booker. You know, life would be a lot different. But then I thought through this a little bit. You know, and this was again thanks to one of your tweets, uh, which was you look at a player like Joel Embiid, and mm-hmm. uh, and I know you know where I'm going with this. I think it was your tweet that got me thinking. Where and. Right. Players like Embiid or Aiton, to some extent even Anthony Davis, I think they are becoming an ideal second fiddle to right. an, uh, to an all-in-one player in the modern NBA. And right. that all-in-one, uh, you know, the, the prototype of that all-in-one NBA player is obviously still LeBron. But you even if you look at a light version of it, Booker kind of uh, holds his place there. Luca is obviously again a. a an ideal emerging all-in-one player in that regard. But you need uh, someone like an Aiton uh, to, as, as a second fiddle, similar to your earlier I mean, you know, your, your point about Embiid. And the, in that sense, this is one aspect where I would say, yes, the results matter. If Hakeem, if Jordan wouldn't have retired, no one's, I mean, no one can say whether Hakeem would have ended up with two rings or not, but maybe he still would have. But to me, the fact of the matter is if Hakeem hadn't, one those mm-hmm. two, two rings, I think Houston would have been put under the scanner as well. Exactly. You're, you're absolutely right. We are very much uh, results-driven, right? Yes. So, the whole theory that I uh, uh, explained works if Aiton wins one championship. Exactly. Right? And <laughs> if he does, and if he plays second fiddle, right? I mean, as we said, so there are two things here. One is, if the Suns end up winning a championship with Aiton playing second fiddle, you know what? all the crimes and the sins will be washed away <laughs> because people will not talk about how the Suns uh, screwed up the draft. Because I think in this particular case, I am with the general folk that the results matter. Yes, yes. I, but he has been playing well, though. He is yes. totally uh, moving in the right direction. And, and you know, the problem... Actually, that was a very interesting uh, draft, right? For all the criticism people are, uh, uh, you know, throwing at all these other teams. I th- believe it was one of the only draft or maybe even uh, one, at least definitely one of the few drafts where the first team rookie uh, was rookie team was actually the first five picks in the draft. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I... So it was Aiton, um, 
uh, Marvin Bagley, Luca, Trey Young, and Jaron Jackson Jr. Right. Mm. So, so those five teams really get those five picks right. The problem is Luca is just showing us a potential ceiling that is just way up there. Right. He's like freaking playing like Le- LeBron James crossed with Magic Johnson at age 20, which kind of skews how we see the other four picks, not to mention the injuries, right? Uh, I still like Marvin Bagley for uh, the Kings, but the guy is always injured. So, you know, that's neither here nor there. So definitely there's something to go talk about there, but definitely at least the other four guys have been uh, all good, just not as good as Luca. So that's right. And incidentally, with Aiton, to me, the issue has never been about his on court play. And again, as long as we can cocoon our expectations to the fact that he has to be the best second fiddle to Booker that can be, I think he's doing that job. To me, some of the issues are more, or some of my issues with him are more around his immaturity, right? I mean, you know, even yes. the, the time where he got banned for 25 games, or even during the bubble, there was this one game where he. Yeah. quote unquote, forgot or didn't show up for his COVID test and missed the first quarter. I mean, those are the kind of things that in a modern professional structure, you do not expect from someone that you're really banking your future on. Right, right. Hopefully he gets better with those things. Yeah, now, yeah. now, going back to something you said about the Warriors draft break, I do think they would like to trade that, actually. Hmm. Uh, now, Interesting. Yeah, now, whether or not they're going to be able to do that, that's a, uh, to their satisfaction is is a big question. So they may be forced to draft and maybe take James Weissman or somebody like that. But I would, sitting at my home, this is completely, you know, the no inside knowledge or anything, but I do think their first preference would be to get out of that spot, if not the entire draft, by getting some vet who can help right away. I think that's what they're going to shoot for. So it's going to be a fascinating off-season for the Warriors, actually. Because they have few uh, weapons, if you will, in their hands that they can use to get, you know, some really interesting pieces in there, which Ravi surprisingly includes Kelly Oubre Jr. as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I, I really like that guy. I don't know if Sun should give up on him, but there is a $12 million, I believe, uh, or I don't know what his contract is, but it's in the teens, right? There is a price tag. The issue there, plus the fact that with uh, uh, Bridges and Cam Johnson, is there a logjam at the wing position? Though you can never have enough wings in today's NBA, right? So it's going to be fascinating to see what they do with uh, Kelly Oubre. Uh, yeah, and you're right. It, it goes back to the conversation we had a few weeks ago about uh, TJ Warren, right? I mean, it, it is back to that same... Uh, situation, the same conundrum. Right, right. Nothing, nothing is to say that Ubre would not hang like twenty-five a game for the playing for the Warriors. In fact, you know who wouldn't, or why wouldn't someone? But that should not mean that the Suns, if they end up dealing Ubre or letting him go, it, it shouldn't mean that they made a bad decision. I think the the wing position is a logjam. Right. I I think they will still try to make it work uh, because uh, you can always use more wings in today's game. Yes. But uh, it's a situation we should keep an eye on. Um, any other thoughts on uh, the bubble, uh, Ravi? I, I really don't know. Actually, we have been spoiled. I think we have been spoiled watching the Warriors for five years. That I, I comp- right? Uh, you These know, teams just look so flawed. I, so, I, I, in I'm, fact, again, just to be uh, told, I mean, uh, I maybe I'm biased, but to me, 
watching the Warriors for you're right the last five years and then seeing the Suns play in the bubble makes me almost puke at times when I'm watching the playoffs. And I'll be honest, the two, the team that infuriates me the most is the Rockets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it feels but, like... Yeah, go ahead. But, you know, none of these even teams that are considered more elite than the Rockets, none of them are... Uh, you know, they're all flawed, deeply flawed. Now, maybe this is how they're supposed to be, except for the Warriors, right? Or the 2011-12... Yeah. or the two thousand yeah. early two thousand Lakers with Shaq and Kobe. I think these are probably the your average championship caliber contenders, right? But having watched the Warriors for five years, because they're truly that Kevin Durant, Steph Curry team is truly in the running for the best ever. All these teams look like so mediocre, actually, to be a contender. I mean, they're all good. Don't get me wrong. It's awesome to watch LeBron and. KD, but they're still so flawed. It's hard to say who's even going to take the bubble, uh, you know, COVID cup, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Agreed yeah. with you. Yeah. All right. Anything uh, you want to cover on the fantasy football scenario? I am really lagging in terms of research. Uh, I was thinking maybe starting next week, we should probably get deep into fantasy, but uh, I'm guessing you're probably ahead of me. So feel free. Well, to... I was at 25% interest and effort level the last time we spoke. I'm happy to say that I'm now at a 75% <laughs> clip. Okay. I've been like tracking and uh, simulating mock traps on fantasy pros uh, for the better part of the last few days, I would say. Uh, so yeah, so I think I'm getting a hang of uh, who to draft, who not to look at. Uh, and overall, just you know, definitely getting interested uh, in 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 what typically on an annual basis ends up becoming the two most interesting weeks of uh, the year. You know, when we are uh, preparing for the draft and then having the drafts in the various leagues that we play in. Right, right. Well, on that positive note, that your interest has gone up significantly. I think uh, we should wrap up today. What do you say? Sure thing, Arvind. I look forward to doing this again very soon. And as you said, maybe the next time we uh, we connect, uh, we can go into a little bit more detail on the football side of things. Definitely. And uh, stay safe, everybody. 